Hi, this is Brian Dolan with the law firm Pepper Hamilton. Pepper partner Greg Novak recently hosted a webinar for West Legal Ed Center. Recent reports have noted that initial coin offerings, also known as ICOs, have raised more investor capital than venture and angel investing combined since the beginning of 2017. This webinar was aimed to help the institutional investor understand what this important new asset class is. Joining Mr. Novak of Pepper was Dave Madden, director at Trident Trust Group, and Tom Garambone, founding partner at Tetris Capital. The three of them engaged in a robust discussion on ICOs and the investments they spawn. If you're interested in reviewing the PowerPoint that accompanied this webinar, please visit Pepper's Pod Center, which sits within the Insight Center at www.pepperlaw.com, where this podcast is posted. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this month's edition of the Investment Management Roundtable and Regulatory Update. Today, we're talking about a very, very, very interesting topic to uh, service providers, to lawyers, to accountants, and to regulators, but most importantly, to investors, and that is the opportunity presented by so-called initial coin offerings, not initial um, placement offerings, but initial coin offerings. Now, in order to get into this topic, we have to take the clock back a little bit and explain what type of coins we're talking about. Obviously, we're not talking about precious metals or gold, but we are talking about a form of digital asset that was created uh, some time ago through the use of so-called blockchain technology. So if you turn to the first page of our presentation materials, we're going to talk about blockchain and digital currencies, how they differ from Bitcoin. That's a very, very important consideration. How they're being used by emerging economies and also emerging companies, some real-life applications, what cryptocurrencies mean, the recent regulatory initiatives by the SEC and the CFTC, and then just sort of prognosticate on what the future holds for this brand-new asset class. So I'd like to introduce one of my guest panelists, and we have two others who will be joining us as the afternoon wears on. But we have with us David Madden, who's the Business Development Director of Trident Trust. David, tell us a little bit about yourself and Trident Trust and uh, how that plays in the Bitcoin and uh, blockchain space. Sure. Uh, thank you, Greg, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm David Madden. I'm the Director of Business Development at Trident Trust. We are a boutique global fund administrator. So our job as an administrator is to help onboard and help these emerging managers, these crypto asset managers who are launching hedge funds um, to come in, and our job is to help value um, their assets under management, and we do investor reporting for them. But most importantly, it's really just to keep them honest about what they're doing, work with our administrators, our auditors, and our other partners um, just to help them get going. But what is Trident Trust? Is Trident Trust a trust company, a trustee, or what is their role? Trident Trust is a global boutique fund administrator. Ah, okay. So, um Kingdom Trust, who will also be joining us, the General Counsel and VP of Compliance, uh, got stuck in traffic, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> they are the actual custodian of these assets, and we will explore some of uh, the implications of that as well. Um, now, as most of you know who've been on this program before, I'm a partner at Pepper Hamilton. I'm in the Financial Services Group and the Technology Group, and I head up the firm's hedge fund practice, the marketplace lending practice, and I'm one of the co-leaders of our, you know, emerging blockchain practice. And when I say that to some people, most people look at me like they've just seen a pink uh, unicorn. <laughs> so it's very important to understand what we're talking about. So if you go to the materials, we're now going to the fourth page. Um, blockchain and digital currencies, what are they, how do they work, how are they tax, what are the risks? So... Digital currencies have their genesis back in October 2009 in a uh, white paper that was prepared by uh, someone using the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto. And basically they were creating a way to create electronic cash in a peer-to-peer -peer environment that's verified by people with very high-power computing systems 
and uh, the money supply is not controlled by a central banking authority, but rather by an algorithm. And the algorithm rewards people who, quote-unquote, mine Bitcoin by using the blockchain technology uh, by giving them more coins. And that's how the money supply in Bitcoin increases. Uh, if you're familiar with the reserve banking system in the United States or when the uh, Federal Reserve uses its open market power to increase the money supply by buying government securities, um, the, these, these are the ways that traditionally governments have managed money supply and therefore the economy. A so-called peer-to-peer electronic cash system avoids all of that. But a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, Bitcoin, is not possible without blockchain. And blockchain is a, essentially a, a computer algorithm. Now, uh, we've flipped the page now. We're on page uh, five of the materials. Basically, what a blockchain does is it creates a method of tracking information and avoiding duplication. And I like to explain it to the layman as sort of the combination of the self-proving will and the deed book concept. And for those lawyers on the, the line who are listening, we all have been uh, trained in law school. Let's talk about the deed book first. If you own a piece of property and you look at the deed, you see it says this is recorded at page, or deed book 57, page 42. And when you look at deed book page 50, uh, deed book 57, page 42, it tells you that your, where your deed is recorded, but it also says who conveyed the property to you, and it has a reference in there back to deed book 49, page 103, and so forth and so on, all the way back to the beginning of time in the original grant of the property. If someone has a deed in their drawer from someone in who had true title to the property and then conveys that deed, but that deed was never recorded in the deed book, then it's considered to be outside of the chain of property. So keep that concept in mind. And now think about a self-proving will. If you have someone who uh, writes out a will or types out a will and then has uh, two witnesses in front of a notary public and the person says, this is my last will and testament, and he signs it in front of the notary and proves his identity to the notary, and then you have the two witnesses who also prove their identity to the notary, and they sign saying that they witnessed me signing my will, and then the notary stamps it. That's a self-proving will in virtually any court in any English-speaking jurisdiction. It's immutable. The four corners of the document have all the formalities that make it a self-proving document. So take that concept and marry it to the chain of title concept where you have an immutable chain of information from the originator or the deed grantor, if you will, all the way through the process. And the deed or the will itself says, this is what happens to the property that's specified herein, and it becomes, in effect, a self-executing contract. That's all blockchain is. It creates the two concepts that I just mentioned and makes it electronic. So there are countries in Africa that have already started to create their property records on blockchain. Why? Because they have no prior legacy systems to worry about. Dubai has moved property records onto blockchain. Why? Again, no prior legacy system, and this is a much more efficient way to move information. So a blockchain can be both a private blockchain where you have one, two, five, ten, a hundred verifiers, as well as an anonymous blockchain, very similar to Bitcoin, where you have multiple verifiers and everybody has to agree, according to the rules of the blockchain, in order for the blockchain data to be respected the next step. Now, you marry the blockchain concept with a, a smart contract concept where the contract, because of the Internet of Things, actually controls a process, a bank account, a payment system, and now you're starting to get the feel for how <clears throat> powerful this technology is. While Bitcoin is decentralized with a distributed letter, ledger, immutable electronic record, it's permissionless, it's based on cryptography, not a central bank, 
There's a consensus protocol. It's trustless, and there is the network effect of a large number of persons participating at once. That is Bitcoin. Dave? I, I was just going to add into it, and one thing that I think is, is very interesting about the whole blockchain is that blockchain is typically a read-only access. And as Greg had mentioned earlier, the only way that the blockchain continues to grow and get bigger is via this mining. So the general public has a read-only access to it. The growth of the chain continues, as Greg mentioned, via the mining. Yeah, now what one of the, you know, common, I think, unfounded criticisms of uh, blockchain technology is, is that somehow it creates an anonymity. Well, that's not really true, because if you look at a Bitcoin blockchain, you can tell which computers created the block all the way back to the origination and who was the original miner. Now, it's done through URLs, and it may actually have a wallet that's set up so that it's not really possible to understand who the, um, the miner is, but the reality is if governments or others wanted to force an understanding of who is in the block, ultimately that would happen. So one of those popular criticisms is more urban legend than reality. Um, some of the lessons from the Bitcoin blockchain technology is um, – it allows the Internet to be optimized to address existing processes. The distributed ledger technology creates a new database and information sharing paradigm. So think about it for a moment. If you take an asset, put it on the blockchain, now take away the regulatory framework, because I know those listening are going to go crazy when I say this, but in the abstract, if you were to take an ownership interest in a company and put it on the blockchain, it is very easy to see how that can be fulfilled or transferred without the need of an exchange, without the need of a broker or any other facilitator to the transaction. Why? Because all of the information necessary to, to ensure that the asset transfers is already on the blockchain. And the smart contract aspect of it would ensure fulfillment. So you don't necessarily need the interposition of an exchange in order to make sure that happens. Now, we are many, many years away from that happening, <clears throat> and it's highly unlikely that the role of the exchanges in our economy are going to be minimized, but you can see, just based on the technology itself, it can work in a way that disintermediates the intermediaries. So what are some of the emerging uses of blockchain? And um, one is that it creates, it, people have created so-called alternative coins or altcoins or tokens, and basically the coins become a store of value, and we're going to talk about value of what in a moment. And we also see that the use of the distributed ledger technology allows for smart contracts to be integrated with the money itself and the property. And instead of having, and I hate to say this, Dave, an administrator or a custodian actually hold the asset, you know, if you go to the logical extreme of blockchain technology, you need neither. Right. Because as long as the parties can verify the ownership of the block, then the movement of the cash and the movement of the property happen simultaneously. And you don't really have to worry at that point about there being, you know, an exchange or other intermediary ensuring that the transfer occurs. I think uh, oftentimes, right, as you had mentioned, any, any sort of transaction involves an element of trust, and that trust is the J.P. Morgan, the, the UBS, someone who sits between you and I transaction. Via the blockchain, that third party is no longer needed, as everything is now out in the open and public for all to see. Until something goes wrong. Right. <laughs> I would say this is the largest reason why institutional money is not coming in yet, because we don't have this on-chain arbitration yet. And so like, everything that's done on the blockchain is irreversible. And so that's, that's not something that's great for a transaction economy right now. Uh, by the way, that speaker there is Tom Garambone. Tom, you want to introduce yourself quickly to our audience? Sure. Um, so I am a managing partner of Tedris Capital. Um, a new hedge fund uh, focused on 
uh, distributed technology, um, crypto assets, as we like to call them now. Um, we just got started and launched in September. Uh, two other partners, Alex Suniborg, who was the head research analyst at Coindesk, and my other partner, Brendan Bernstein, who was the next Goldman guy, and then at Brainchild, an angel investing firm. My background is... <coughs> Sorry, my background is um, control systems engineering from um, Duke University. I then spent some time on Wall Street at Deutsche Bank in the financial sponsors group doing leverage files and whatnot, and then ended up focusing in um, mature SaaS-related companies, e-wallets, uh, security, and kind of had a serendipitous background for this whole world, but I have been involved in kind of Bitcoin since, since 2012, and so picked my head up in late 2016 and realized that from my engineering background, I knew pretty much all the engineers that were doing interesting stuff in this, and so kind of it made sense in kind of May to, to kind of do this full-time, so that's kind of where we are right now. Right. Okay, so we're on slide 12 right now, uh, and this is the one that has the seal of the great seal of the state of Delaware. Um, and it says real-world applications. Now, why would we put the seal of the state of Delaware? Because Delaware is the first state, to my knowledge, that actually adopted a statute that said that <clears throat> records maintained on blockchain will be accepted by the state of Delaware for purposes of corporate action. Now, one of the biggest issues uh, for those who deal with uh, Delaware corporations is that the um, keepers of records, especially of small companies, startup companies, tend to be a little sloppy on who owns what. And when it comes time for the company to go public, they are always increasing the authorized capital and doing other things with the corporate charter in order to make sure that the shares, when issued, are validly issued. And <clears throat> those types of cleanup actions tend to be extremely expensive and the state of Delaware, obviously, is trying to facilitate that. You move books and records of the company onto blockchain, and you have one or two persons as verifiers of that blockchain, and now many of the issues associated with ownership of a company go away because the uh, transfer agent, the custodian, the, the trustee, essentially are merged into the contract. So some of the other... Um, Real-world applications, identity, proving the identity of a person and or the owner of property, supply chain management, finance and trade settlement. We've already talked about how uh, once you have a smart contract tied to a blockchain, uh, you may not need to have an intermediary. Corporate governance, we just talked about what Delaware is doing. Healthcare and clinical trials, <coughs> where the data is now shared either on an anonymous or named basis among different clinicians as a means of managing the FDI approval process. Energy control and production, again, being embedded in the blockchain and tracked almost in the same way that units of production are tracked. Um, prediction markets and initial coin offerings and token sales. And it's this last point that we're going to spend some time on today after we go through the next slide, which I call the spaghetti slide. Um, and this is a sort of an example, <coughs> uh, and we're on slide 13, of how the current transfer works. Let's say you're an asset manager and you want to buy an asset in a um, <coughs> country like Japan. So you're in the pink box on the upper left-hand side. You send an order to your broker. The broker then sends an order to a corresponding broker in Japan who then has to go out and find the asset. He has to send the order to the securities exchange. Securities exchange approves the transaction through a notice of execution. He then goes to a subcustodian to actually settle the contract. That's the red box on the lower left. And the lower left, then we have the pre-settlement matching of all of the information to make sure the money changes hands. Then, once we actually have the settlement, it goes back from the broker-dealer to the U.S. broker-dealer. From the U.S. broker-dealer, we have a notice of execution back to the asset manager. 
And ultimately, there's a reconciliation between the broker-dealer and the asset manager, between the U.S. broker-dealer and the foreign broker-dealer, and between the foreign broker-dealer and the sub-custodian, that in fact there has been a trade and the trades match. And if there's exceptions, then somebody has to track it down. In a blockchain smart contract, all of these pieces of the puzzle go away. And in effect, the asset is purchased by the asset manager from the actual holder. And the ownership shifts based upon whatever rules have been set up in the blockchain. Now, you're probably going to end up with a broker or someone facilitating that trade, but you don't necessarily need an exchange standing between the two parties to ensure that the transaction actually happens, because it won't happen if the money's not there. It won't happen if KYC isn't passed. It won't happen if AML isn't passed. So in terms of a <clears throat> disruptive technology, I apologize, I'm a little hoarse today. I was at the... Uh, Eagles-Redskins game until very late last night. Go Birds. In any event, um, the, uh, the, the challenge today is solved by blockchain. We, you know, there is a, a move to move to T plus zero, where trade actually happens. You're not going to have that as long as you have all of these different steps in the process. You will have it, however, if you adopt blockchain technology. So... So now let's talk about that last bullet point of uh, cryptocurrency and altcoins. On the next slide, slide 14, you'll see the circulating supply and market capitalization of various coins that have been issued since January. Um, this is a very telling slide with some of these numbers um, large, not overwhelmingly large, but getting bigger every day. So if you go to slide 15... What is an initial coin offering, and how does it work? Well, it's a means of crowdfunding by selling tokens, a.k.a. initial coins or uh, an ICO. Now, initial coin offerings basically can be broken down into two categories, security tokens and utility <coughs> or app tokens. And then security tokens are further broken down into straight securities, and then equity securities tokens. And why the subcategories? Because each one has different tax consequences. You didn't think you were going to get by this conversation without talking about tax. <laughs> right. um, Benjamin Franklin said the only sure things are death and taxes, right? Well, uh, the tax man has his handout with respect to an ICOs as well, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So just again, uh, to make sure we all understand the magnitude of the issue, how much money was raised? Well, through June, you can see a billion eight, um, and that number has obviously gone up since June. This was the latest statistics we had available when we were putting this together. And then what's the average crowd sell? Um, it's about $28 million on average raised by the various crowd sales, and you can see those that are listed here of how much was raised. Now, Bitcoin uh, closed yesterday at about $6,100 a coin. What is it now? Uh, Bitcoin is, well, yesterday there was a fork, actually, which complicates things. It's a Bitcoin gold fork. But prior to yesterday, it was it was about 5900 Bitcoin gold, which was a fork, is trading around 400 And Bitcoin itself is about 5600 So, higher than that. Right. So a lot of the money that is going into crowdfunding right now, believe it or not, is that money. It's money that has essentially house money that has been created, yeah. uh, and as a result, investors may feel a little more randy than they otherwise would if they were dealing with fiat currency-based assets at the present time. Um, but, but let's take a step back and let's talk about what's really going on here. What you have is an attempt to redefine the business enterprise and the business process. If you think about um, someone who takes their business and says, okay, I am going to charge a fee to access a particular software process, or I am going to charge a fee for the delivery of certain information or access to certain information, and you could do it on a subscription basis, but in the coin world, you do it based upon the delivery of a coin. And so the issuer of coins are not issuing an interest in the company. 
they're basically issuing future uh, a share of future revenue, i.e., the coin access to a particular process. Um, some real-world examples might be useful. Think of a the owner of a professional sports enterprise who wants to build a new stadium. Well, we know that the concessions and the parking fees have already been pledged to the municipality because they're pledging the land and they're also doing part of the financing. The building itself is already mortgaged to the hilt. And the team, which is leasing the facility, and actually it's the team's rental payments and television payments that are supporting the rental of the facility, the team isn't for sale. They're not going to sell you a share of that. So if you have a couple hundred million hole in your stadium budget, how do you fill it? Well, somebody came up with the idea that I'm going to sell seat licenses. And these seat licenses essentially create an asset. They don't impair the tickets. The tickets are still purchased and sold at a market price. They don't impair the ownership of the building because the owners of the building, the bank, and other investors still own the building. And the team just has a lease that it pays uh, to the building in order to um, play in that particular facility. But the seat license creates a whole new asset. It's revenue to the stadium operator, and it essentially allows them, after paying taxes, to use that profit or, or revenue to plug the hole in the budget. But the seat license is, in effect, a toll. It's a charge, very similar to a medallion for a taxi cab, very similar to you know, buying a paper route when you're 10 years old. Uh, it's a charge that allows you to do something else. A utility token or a utility coin is, in effect, just like that. It's someone looking at their business and saying, if I need people to access my software, then they're going to have to pay for the use of the software, but I am going to charge them <coughs> for the simple ability to access the software or the ecosystem, and that is the best way to envision what a utility token is. Think of it, you know, I'm here in New York and used to travel to New Jersey. Uh, think of it as the old Garden State Parkway where every 10 feet you have to put another token in before Easy Pass, right? Another token into the toll booth. And in effect, that's what you have with the sale of utility tokens. Now, if the ecosystem or the technology that is being accessed through the tokens is sought after and therefore very valuable, then the scarcity value of the tokens is going to increase and people will be willing to pay more for those tokens. Now, no one would say that um, any of the uh, sports team transfer services like StubHub or anything like that are selling securities. They're not. They're selling tickets and reselling tickets. In the same way that a token that gives you access to a particular service or a particular software is not a security. It is just that. It's a ticket to Hamilton, or it's a ticket to the toll road, or it's a ticket to the software. It is, in effect, a pre-sale of future revenue encapsulated into the, into the products, um, the, the service aspect of the token. So that's a utility token. Now, we also have heard of so-called pre-sale agreements where someone says, well, I'm going to issue tokens in the future, which will be utility tokens. However, the ecosystem is not developed yet, and so I'm going to pre-sell the right to buy those tokens. So that's sort of like a pre-license or pre-seat license agreement. You don't get the seat license, you get the pre-seat license agreement. Um, that probably is a security because that looks much more like an investment contract under the Howey test. The Howey test, of course, goes back to the 1940s, United States Supreme Court, four elements to determine whether or not for federal law purposes there is a security. Do you have a enterprise um, reliance on a central manager to create value? a uh, putting money at risk with an expectation of profit. So when you're <clears throat> expecting 
a manager to develop an ecosystem and therefore deliver to you something of value that will increase in value because others will want to buy it, that sort of looks like a security. But once the tokens are actually issued, and, you know, whether you, the analogy of the Penny Arcade or, you know, Dave and Buster's kind of place or um, the, the toll road, in order to access the system, you have to put a token, and if the token is of short supply and you want to get into that system, you're going to pay more for it. It's as simple as that. It's supply and demand. That's not a security. So, again, peeling back the onion, we have the concept of the utility token. We have the pre-utility token, which we think is probably a security. And then you have others which have so much of a um, ownership feel to them that they probably are securities by their very nature. And then you have still others that are effectively a form of stock ownership or equity ownership. <coughs> now, here's why this is so important. If I told you that I'm going to do an offering and um, 55% of the proceeds I raise are going to be used to support the manager's profligate lifestyle, now, I disclose it. Obviously, there's no fraud. I disclose it. Most investors would say, well, no, I really don't want to support someone's airplanes and beautiful home, et cetera. Uh, I'm not going to invest, right? But if I told you that 55% of, of a coin offering is going to be used to pay taxes, most people would say, huh, do I really want to pay that much of my investment dollar for taxes? And, of course, you say, well, why is that the case? I thought when a company sold securities, it doesn't pay tax. Well, you have to go back to 1986 Internal Revenue Code, which is based on the 1954 Internal Revenue Code, which had very distinct definitions of what is stock and what is debt. Most of these coins that are deemed to be securities are not debt, and unless they have equity features that would turn them into stock under Delaware law or whatever the state law is, it's likely that they're not stock. And if it's not a partnership, it's an association that's taxable as a corporation for federal tax purposes, so you have to have stock. If an entity issues stock, it's tax-free. So where do I get 55%? Well, the marginal federal rate is 35% for corporations or associations that are taxed as corporations. Uh, many states that have an income tax are in the 8 to 10% range, so I just round it up to the higher range for the corporate tax, and most states follow the federal income tax determination of what is and is not income. So if you've got income for Fed, you've got it for the state. And then there's that little sleeper tax called the sales and use tax. Most states, when you are selling software, impose a sales tax. Now, you have to look at the particular state, and I know this is going out to a national audience, so we can't say one way or the other here, but sales taxes run anywhere from 6% to 10 or 11%. So if you're at the highest tax jurisdiction, you've got 35% federal, 35, uh, 10 state, and a 10% sales tax. That's 55% of the net proceeds have to go to the tax man. Bottom line, you need to read the fine print. You need to know, is this a utility token? Are there losses that may be available to offset some of this income in order to avoid that? Or is this some form of debt or can be construed as for the use and forbearance of money? Or is it equity? Does it have enough of an equity flavor in order to be able to say from a tax point of view, this is not subject to income tax. Now, the sales tax is a different issue. If it is a true utility, you may have to pay that no matter what. But 10% versus 55% is a pretty big swing, and I think most investors would want to know. But the bottom line here is the coin issuer needs to take these issues to ground and needs to decide which path is it going to go down. Now, a lot of people suggest, oh, I'm just going to go offshore. Actually, that can be more complicated under the U.S. tax rules dealing with uh, attempts to expatriate assets or avoid income if you're a U.S. person. And strongly recommend that you talk to a tax advisor before you think that just going offshore solves your problem. So we're now going to look at 
cryptocurrencies, the SEC's report of investigation. Um, the DAO, or if you say it as an acronym, the DAO, which I think was uh, kind of an interesting use of uh, terminology there, is one of the many virtual organizations that issued a cryptocurrency, sold 1.15 billion DAO tokens, totaling approximately $150 million in proceeds. The DAO tokens grant the token holder certain voting and ownership rights, would earn the DAO a profit on certain projects. Anyone was eligible to purchase the tokens, and they could redeem the tokens for either Ethers or a multi-step process that took approximately 46 days. So, the first thing is the, the developers of the DAO thought that they had avoided a lot of these issues because there was no organization. There was no incorporation. There was no legal entity called the DAO. That took the regulators 30 seconds where they said, oh, well, it's just an unincorporated organized association of persons. That's enough for us to have it constitute an issuer under the, the Securities Act of 1933. They then concluded that the tokens, because of the ownership and the voting and the right to profit on projects, not on the token sale, but on the projects themselves, created a security under the 33 Act and the 34 Act. And then they said that um, the automation of certain functions through technology, smart contracts, et cetera, does not remove the contract from the purview of the federal securities laws and that they even had an exchange. Now, the SEC <clears throat> demurred in enforcement to some extent with respect to Dow, but the real value of looking at the Dow is what does it mean for the industry, what does it mean for issuers, and now um, what people thought could avoid regulatory entanglements, it's not happening. And that's why you have a law firm, an administrator, a custodian, and an asset manager sitting here today talking about cryptocurrencies and what to do with them and how do we report them. So um, <clears throat> what are the securities law issues from the point of view of the issuer? Am I issuing a token um, that is a utility token or an investment contract? How does this thing pass the Howey test? And if, in fact, it's a security and I try to ignore that, believe it or not, there are some people who do this on their own because they're technology companies and they don't want to talk to lawyers. Uh, big mistake. But if they've done that, um, the most powerful and potent weapon that the regulator has is rescission, where they go back to the issuer and say, you were engaged in an illicit offering. That was a security. Give the investors their money back. No, not, don't give them the value today. Don't cash them out. Give them their money back. And so if the money's been spent on development expenses, the next stage, of course, is bankruptcy. So I've talked a ton here. I've set the stage of what this is. Tom, you play in the space. You buy this stuff. Yeah. What's your due diligence exercise? What issues do you, boxes do you tick before you buy something like this in your fund? So we're, we're a multi-strategy fund. <clears throat> so we play both the, the well-known liquid assets like Bitcoin, Ether. And then we also, about 33%, were funded in this SAFT pre-ICO space. So SAFT, which I don't know, don't know what's covered before, is a simple agreement for future tokens. So that has been the way of accredited investors getting involved in the pre-token uh, launch discounts. And so I think I'm, I'm definitely on the same page. And I think the ecosystem is now that a token that is not able to be used for its intended function today is, is, in, is labeled security. So I, th I think that's kind of where things are. So we do just do SAFs and we do liquid assets. We don't do ICOs themselves. I think at the ICO itself is, is a little bit of a complicated mess, and we'd prefer just to get in early or um, later where it's more mature. But we don't discriminate because, at the end of the day, all of this stuff is early-stage technology anyway. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with your definition on utility tokens. I think I'd further break it down in three areas of like what is a utility token. Um, I think one area that you didn't cover is, is deferred revenue. I think if you have a token that's issued and is burned, that 
could actually just be deferred revenue, so like a subscription. Um, the two other utility tokens would be, and I, th I think maybe we missed the point of it, it could also just be labeled a commodity, which I think is also a huge mess um, of where, where is the distinction there. But a utility to token could be, I think the two ways you could think of it are like a membership agreement to Ticketmaster or like a ticket platform and then the actual ticket itself. So you could own one or the other. And so one allows or both. Or both. So one utility token could give you membership to buy more tickets available. And so there's value in that and there could be scarcity in that. And the other one would be just the ticket itself. And so that utility token is really intended to be like a market clearing mechanism. And so that really balances the supply and demand. And so that price should move around to its actually pegged utility. And it, that probably needs to be pegged to an actual utility or things can get weird. I think there are ways to figure that out, but as we recommend to the companies that we work with, that they, if, if that's the intended purpose to be a market clearing mechanism, it should be pegged to an actual utility. So that's that area. I think. Um, well, let, hold one one second there. Sure. Um, the next slide we're talking about the exchanges. Yeah. And you know, do you need to be a registered broker dealer? The linchpin, linchpin, excuse me, for. Um, um, SEC or state registered broker-dealer requirements is a security. So if it's a true utility token, it's not a security. And you don't yeah. need, it can be traded by an online exchange. Now, there may be Federal Trade Commission issues. There may be state consumer protection issues that you need to worry about, depending on the state. But that's different from whether or not you've got a federal lawsuit coming after you because you're an exchange operating an unlicensed broker-dealer. So a lot of pressure is on that initial determination of what is and is not a security. Yeah. So then the next question is, do I need to register as an ATS under regulation ATS? And that, that's um, the uh, automated trading system rules of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And the answer is you very well may, well, not automated, alternative trading systems. You very well may if you're acting or trying to act like, you know, NYSE ARCA, or one of the other alternative trading systems, if you if you facilitate the sale of a security, are you potentially liable for aid or in a better liability? The answer is absolutely that is a risk. Um, from the point of view of the investor, going back to you, Tom, will I get the benefit of my bargain? When? How can I do due diligence? Has anybody done due diligence on these things? Good question. Is there a is there a uh, investor community like you would with small cap stocks, for example, that tracks coins? Yeah, um, this area is definitely exploding right now. Um, I think a lot of the press has talked about a lot of funds launching. Um, from our perspective, I think there's just a lot of people that are gathering friends and family money. I think there's probably 10 like, serious global funds that are now active in talking and that are act as a hybrid of a VC hedge fund model. Um, but yeah, I think I think this dialogue of how do you value these things and how do you due diligence them is just starting out. Um, it's it's a weird area that you need to I think be both technically proficient and kind of macroeconomics wise proficient. So a lot of people either fall on one or the other two of the ranges, and so you either understand the technology and you're a little insecure on how the finance side works and just valuation in general, or you come from a more macro, typical finance background, and you just want to stay away from anything of getting deeper into how the actual code, work, code works. So you really do need to due diligence both of them. And so what we do... Um, as, as an investor, we, so we have our investment um, teams. We have the three managing partners that, that I talked about. We also have four operating partners who are actually working on projects in the space. And so our process works is first it, it, something comes to us and we think about it in terms of the investment manager side. Does this pass the litmus test of it? Is this interesting as a decentralized technology? Does it even need to be decentralized in some aspect? Most of the case, it does not. In most of the cases, you just find people using this as a bootstrapping, um, capital raising. Um, uh, they, they use the ICO just as capital raising, and that, and that doesn't pass any of the reason why this should be used ongoing. 
And so if it does pass that, then we tend to look at the actual asset that they're issuing. And so does that make sense in, in terms of being involved in this economy that they're creating? And in most cases, that doesn't either. And then after that is, is there a reason to then hold this asset? So is there actual value in this asset that they've created? And this isn't necessarily obvious, but a, if the asset could just be moved in and out of, then it really doesn't have that much value. So a payment rail doesn't actually have any value because a payment rail, its supply would actually go to infinite because people are constantly moving in and out of it, and so there's just no value there. Um, there, is, there is reasons to create a payment rail, but if as an investor we're looking for actual returns in something, it doesn't make sense for us to get involved in. And so then after that, that all makes sense, then we have our operating partners actually look into the technology and we meet the team, and we figure out if they could actually do what they're talking about. And so that's that's kind of our step process. Now, I think a lot of other good firms are, are on the same page as what we're doing as well. So one of the things that you always have to worry about in these things is, is it a Ponzi scheme? Yeah. Right? And common red flags, for those of you listening, high investment returns with little to no risk, overly consistent returns, unregistered investments, unlicensed sellers – secretive under complex strategies and fee structures, no minimum investor requirements, and there's issues with the paperwork. You know, oh, the white paper's not quite done yet, or there really is no disclosure, or you ask for the license agreement that gives you the access to the technology. Uh, we haven't gotten the lo- from the lawyers yet, but they're still selling an asset, which obviously is very important to consider. Um, you know, can you rely on the federal courts for redress? And the SEC has stated that investing in an ICO may limit your recovery in the event of fraud or, th- or theft, especially if it's an offshore offering. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is, as, as Tom pointed out, the, the jury's still out on whether or not these things could be construed as commodities. The jurisdiction of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission is very broad, and after Dodd-Frank is even broader to include swaps, and virtually almost any contract for the future delivery of something. So it's very possible that a theft may be actually a commodity futures contract if the underlying asset is not a security but a commodity. And yet CFTC has said that virtual currencies, you know, like Bitcoin, are in fact commodities. The IRS has said that if you trade Bitcoin and you have a dollar basis of 100 and you sell it for value worth 6000 that you have $5,900 worth of income that you have to report every time you spend the Bitcoin or make an investment. There's no rollover of the gain like you have in certain other types of assets. So, you know, there's tax issues to the use of the, certainly of the Bitcoin and the Ethereum. There are securities issues. How is it traded? Do you have a disclosure document? Um, how can you even do buyer beware? And then if you're a fund and you hold this stuff, how do you meet the custody requirements? Are you a self-custodian? Do you have an independent third-party custodian? Um, how can you comply with the SEC's rule on custody if, in fact, you're a registered investment advisor? Or do you just punt on custody and you do a physical count and you make sure that you can comply with custody in that way? State laws have an impact. New York has the bit license requirements if you want to issue these things. And then there's a model law called the Model Virtual Virtual Currency Regulation, which some states have been looking at. No one's adopted yet. Dave, administrators. Uh, Thanks, Greg. So from an administrative perspective, remember, our job is to do investor reporting or investor services, and also we do monthly NAV strikes or net asset value. One of the difficult aspects we have is for valuation specifically within these like pre-ICO sales. Um, And typically we need to value those as kind of Tom alluded to based on his input. You know, there is no really sort of mature service out there that is performing value. So from our perspective, from an administrative perspective, we need to put some sort of um, value on these pre-ICO sales that ultimately the auditor is going to be comfortable stamping their approval valuing. So we'll often work within sort of the constraints of 
what, for example, is in Tom's PPM or if he has some sort of additional um, best practices or pricing policy in place that the auditor is comfortable with. But ultimately, as an administrator, are you going to accept an exchange, you know, uh, a coin exchange that says um, we value, or the last trade in this particular coin was two days ago, and it came in at this price, and the bid-ask spread is now this. Are you going to do the mean like you would with a traditional security? Or? So, you know, so what has become actual industry standard practice is taking an average um, right. of the exchanges at, at a given time. And so it's, it's also actually funny and weird in this space that, you know, you don't have your market closed time. And so like all of the funds and and the uh, auditors have all kind of come to agreement to use uh, end four of day UTC. Yeah, or it's 4 o'clock, some or then for some at 11.59. A UTC time mark, then the new day is the first second of the new day after that. But it's it's where everybody's come to, and we're working with auditors on this is the average of of the exchanges at of uh, what four o'clock New York time or um it's it's uh, what we're doing right now is is eleven fifty nine UTC. Um, I think what's important though is just consistency. Yeah, right? you need you practice. need to strike it the same time, the same month, you can't you can't be all over the place in terms of when you strike it. So provided Tom said to us, you know, eleven fifty nine, the last Friday business day of the month, provided that consistency stays, we're comfortable with that. Have we been through an audit cycle with the with the CPA firms? No. That that's coming up. Now, uh, <laughs> that's how new this industry is, right? And so, why we should add on the table, on the table too? Yeah, and and that's also one of the reasons why I guess custody is a big thing now as well, is because all these funds are getting to the point now where you need qualified custodial um, services, and so all these funds have been able to operate. There's no fund that's more than a year old at this point, and so this is now triggering problems in the blockchain area that need to get solved, and there hasn't been a reason to solve them up until now. So, but how, do you, how do you have a qualified custodian hold a digital asset? That's a really good question. Yeah. It's, it's, so that's, there's, there's about three or four really good teams trying to solve that and are working with um, custody services now, and so we're involved with two betas on how that's going to work out. But so we're, since we're SEC exempt still, and we're going to trigger that next year, like we need to be ahead of that problem. And so we're working with everybody on getting it solved now. And so there's a lot of big institutions, it seems like, that are, are around this. And this is probably the largest problem in the space right now. Now, the interesting thing is, and I'm going to take the lawyers on the phone back uh, to their law school days, there is actually a rule under the Uniform Commercial Code for uh, perfecting the security interest in electronic chattel paper. Okay, there's a mechanism for that. Electronic chattel paper is paper that's produced when you sell chattel goods services, right? All right. Uh, unfortunately, this is not chattel paper, and therefore the rule does not apply. And there is therefore is no statutory mandate on how you perfect these things. Yeah. Um, as a result, if you can't perfect, the question is can you really have custody? So that means you have to have possession in order to trigger the, the general rule that you know, believe it or not, possession is nine tenths of the law, right? So if you can't, if you can't have possession, that means you need to deny somebody else the possession of it, and that's where the custodians are having the difficult time because these are slippery assets. They're they're electronic. How do you lock things down? Now, having said that, most of our money, dollars, is electronic. Our assets are all digitized. So this is not a new issue, and you know, the industry has gotten comfortable eventually with digital representations of assets being held and then verifications of that. Um, but it comes down to trust, right? You have to trust your service providers and trust the person who holds it. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say. A big part, and, and, you know, anyone who claims they're an expert within this field, you know, I, I would say is lying. And that's why, you know, for us particularly as an administrator, it, it, it means a lot to work and with service providers that we trust. It, it, it happens to be a, a sector that there's a lot of information share right now within it only because it's so new. And as Tom said, everyone is trying to figure this out as we go. So in that sense, it's, it, it, it's very exciting. But for us, 
particularly within the administrator space. We're here to keep our clients out of trouble. We're here to keep ourselves out of trouble. And so having these trusted partners, auditors, law firms, you know, custodians, that's a big, big part of, of our business. So on this slide, we mentioned AML considerations, and, of course, there's KYC, anti-money laundering and know your customer. Um, how do you get to the bottom of the ownership of an asset? I'm assuming it's right on the blockchain, right? You can tell who, or at least the URLs, who own something all the way back. Well, you're correct. The, the, the blockchain should have the two IP addresses on it. The issue, or one of the issues that we face that we're still struggling with is what was the source of funds to buy those Bitcoin? So traditionally, a bank will know, for example, if you know, somebody's coming in depositing million dollars in cash into the account. Somebody's watching that. These wallets, these exchanges, don't watch that. There's just 10,000 Bitcoins that come in there. Now, where did the source of the fund for that 10,000 Bitcoin come from? Those are still questions, and those are still issues that we're looking to address. And um, believe it or not, there are some providers out there that we're working with now that are basically trying to understand that and help us with that. So we rely on our managers, obviously, to, to vouch and know their clients, and obviously we're going to do whatever due diligence on our end that we can as well. So it seems the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? It comes down to know who you're do, dealing business with, be comfortable with the people you're dealing business with, trust that they've made some good decisions, and um, verify, 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 right? Right. Um, one housekeeping item, we got a comment from someone indicating that the materials we were referring to were not in the supplements. Uh, I will contact Thompson Reuters and make sure that those who were in attendance do get copies of the materials. Uh, those of you who did not have access to them, uh, it was pretty much a discussion outline as opposed to uh, specific questions being answered. So it's a very good checklist to understand the uh, issues that you're going to be faced with if you just decide to go into the space. Uh, let me leave you with a, a quick uh, anecdote. We talked about the stadium and the seat licenses and the fact that uh, the stadium owner or team owner created a new asset um, in order to fund what he was trying to accomplish. Many of the utilities that we see out there are securities and masquerading as, as tokens, um, but they either show an ownership interest or some share of the profits or give you a vote or control in the operation of the business. If they're securities, then all of the formalities of the securities, wall, uh, uh, securities world should be present, and you should be getting disclosure documents. You should read those disclosure documents. You need to understand what, in fact, you're buying. If, on the other hand, it truly is a utility, the, the, the ticket or the license to buy the ticket or the password or the token or, you know, insert game chip here in order to advance to the next level, well, then um, that probably is not a security. And you want to make sure that what you're buying is from a reputable person that you know it's going to work, and, you know, your recourse is pretty much the Better Business Bureau. Uh, it's not a securities issue unless you have some form of um, consumer protection that might be applicable in a given state. Don't forget the tax issue. If you use appreciated property to buy something, the measure of your gain is the value of the property you receive and your dollar basis in whatever it is that you deliver. So if you deliver Bitcoin that you bought at $100 to get tokens worth $6,000, you have $5,900 worth of income that's going to have to be reported. Currently, there is, presently is no deferral mechanism. Now, interesting question, which I'd like to ask my tax lawyers, uh, and probably will do so, is if you... Um, use appreciated Bitcoin to buy an equity token, does that give you some form of deferral? And I think the answer is probably no, because I don't think there's an exchange rule under the Internal Revenue Code for that type of exchange. But you just know that there are people out there who think that they're investing coin and there's no tax consequence. And take anything away from here, but Franklin was right. <laughs> Taxes are one of those two sure things you always have to worry about. 
Um, this is an exploding area of law. It is not something to be stomped out or turned away or ignored. By the same token, it is something that needs to be watched carefully and that the participants in need to understand the risks and what's going on. It's an outgrowth of crowdfunding. Um, it's a different form of crowdfunding. It's not under regulation crowdfund, but it is nevertheless accessing potential investment capital in a way that previously hasn't been done. So as businesses innovate and find new ways for people to participate in their business, um, we're going to see more of this, I think. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think regardless of where this is all going, this concept of digital scarcity and digital assets isn't going away. And we now have this technology that allows for digital scarcity assets. And so like that's a concept that's just going to continue to explode. I think it's obvious that there's going to be weird things around it. There's going to be scams, anything new and exciting. So I think as it probably stands today, I think about 95, maybe higher than that percentage of stuff out there you need to be concerned about. But I think that probably even dilutes the value of that 5% of very promising technology out there. Um, is it going away? Maybe seven months ago, if you asked me, I would have said, yeah. Asking me today, no way. This is here to stay. Um, the amount of interest I see in it is just unbelievable. Um, I think that this younger generation gener you know, really believes in it. I think that they're the future and that they're going to be the people that bring this technology forward. And it's without a doubt here to stay. So our uh, contact information is in the back of the deck. If anybody has any questions, please uh, feel free to give us a call. Thank you for your attention, and have a great day. See you next month. Thank you. Thank you.